0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaughan Radian here in Tampa, Florida, where we are covering the National Defense Industrial Association's annual SOFIC Conference and Trade Show, one of the world's leading gatherings of special operators and the companies that support them from around the world. Our coverage here is sponsored by FLIR, and we're talking to the man in charge of NDIA, retired U.S. Air Force General Hawk Carlisle, uh, who is the president and uh, CEO of NDIA. Sir, Great seeing you! you, Terrific demonstration out there. Uh, What's the one thing you think? What was the one critique that came to you, maybe, when you were watching that demonstration?
1: Uh, Well, as you might imagine, I have a few. uh, First of all, it was a great demonstration. Great, uh, great look at all our young men and women that do the great job out there. Our coalition capability with uh, multinational work. Um, They talked about the combat control team, which I thought was important. Uh, Could add a little more air. They, they could add some. MV22 or CV22s they could have had some MQ9s they could have even had an A10 or so, but you know, I'm a little air centric. So. Or, or,
0: or pave hawker. Hey, even have an AC-130. Or AC-130. Yeah.
1: Right. Although the the combat Talent II was up. So.
0: Right. That, that, that's true. That's true. But you know, who doesn't like uh, having a hundred five millimeter gun in the air? Yeah. But we digress. Um, th- this has uh, been a terrific event. Uh, tremendous uh, participation from a leadership perspective. Uh, Ellen Lord here, not just the SOCOM uh, leadership. Uh, Talk to us about why events like this are important, because it looked like for a little while the Pentagon was going to crack down and say, hey, look, we don't want this kind of military tourism by general officers. I understand that you know, there's a bottom line aspect of it from, you, from right. your guys' standpoint in terms of the folks who are attending and paying uh, in order to be able to underwrite your efforts to, lop, you know, to support the industry. But talk to us also from a professional standpoint. You would spent 40 years in uniform. Why events like this are valuable and and should continue to be valuable and maybe get even more valuable when you look at a very uncertain world and an uncertain future?
1: So, you know, I I understand the initial uh, move to potentially look at our travel. And I was part of it when I was still wearing a uniform. And I understand where the secretary came from in in making sure you're measured about what you do. Um, And there's events where uh, maybe there was too much travel and people were going just to go. Um, and doing less work uh, but they always did something so uh, I, I can understand the the impetus for it all at the end of the day we're in this together industry the military osd the civilians academia we're, we're all going to solve these problems together and one-on-one becomes very difficult you know secretary lord had to talk to every company especially where a lot of the innovations are occurring, all the small companies uh, you think of a small business, how many people she'd have, she'd have no time to do her actual job. The form that we bring together in something like SOFIC, is we allow those dialogues and that to take place all at one time. I was just part of a panel where uh, General Tony Thomas, commander of SOCOM, and every one of his components as well as his acquires from JSOC and here at SOCOM all sat on a stage and answered questions from industry. Everybody in industry got to hear it. They got to ask the questions that were pertinent to them and where they're going. So the exchange of ideas, uh, understanding what the gaps and challenges are for the warfighter so that industry can focus their IRAD and focus their efforts, and then hear feedback from industry back to the government going, hey, what about this? Have you thought about this? Here's what we're working on. What do you think? And then the exhibit floor where actual operators that are going to use it in the field, walk along the floor and go, hey, if you did this, this, and this, this would work better. And so it gives industry insight into an operator's perspective, and it gives the operators an insight into the business perspective. So the exchange of information and the exchange of ideas is critically important. And, And in fact, Secretary Mattis made the comment, he goes, I need my leadership in the department to be talking to industry more, not less. Uh, So I think it was uh, a governor to make sure that we're judicious and and we do due diligence if if the department's going to send folks out. Uh, But he wants industry and leadership and the operators to, to work together and solve these problems. So it's incredibly valuable in that way.
0: Um, everybody's eyes are on, uh, the sp- spending picture. Um, there's, you know, a tremendous bump in 2018. Looks like it's going to be another strong, uh, 2019. 2020 is more uncertain. The consensus being flat or, or declining. Um, given that, that you're representing, um, uh, I like mean the entire defense, U.S. defense industrial complex, effectively from from you know aerospace companies. Even though you you have a partner in AIA, you're doing the ground to the air to the sea and the the, the whole equation. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that budgetary expectation is, how the membership is looking and planning for in the coming years, and how you as an organization are looking at that budgetary landscape in terms of your legislative activities, uh, you know, advocacy uh, operations and everything else you'll be doing going, going past that 22, you know, well, starting now, but even going past into right. the next couple of years.
1: So, uh, you know, I think uh, Secretary Mattis has done tremendous work, and I think the bump in the defense budget in 18 and 19 is a huge positive for this country, and it's a huge positive for the industry, obviously. Um, but I do believe that, it, you know, this is not a sustainable growth over the long term. I think flat is probably optimistic and maybe even a little bit of a decline in real spending power. Uh, But what we need to do in this two years when we can kind of get ahead of the game is uh, take what Secretary Mattis wants. He wants lethality and readiness. Talk to the combatant commands like SOCOM, CENTCOM, UCOM, PACOM, all of them, and see what they need, see where their gaps are, find the most bang for the buck, and then think about long-term sustainment. So Secretary Lord said it today. In in almost every program, 70 cents on the dollar you spend on that program is long-term sustainment. So you can buy them now, but think about maintaining them and sustainment over the long-term, the logistics chain, the supply chain, second and third order. Uh, suppliers as they go down the line. So I think what we're working with our industry partners is find the most the capability that fills the gaps the department needs and then plan and look at what the long-term sustainment going to be able to be to maintain that lethality and the readiness in the long term.
0: One of the things that uh, folks are talking about is, uh, well, you know, if you see something, buy it. I mean, that's basically the guidance, that if something is commercially available, and you, can, as we heard Secretary Lord mention, uh, you know, with her three-plus decades, 33 years uh, in the defense industry, Textron Systems, where she was the chief executive there, um, is, you know, if if there's something commercial and it can be easily adapted to military standards, buy it. But there is a concern. As you walk all around the floor, a lot of folks will tell you, you know, nobody's paying attention to that sustainability problem. And you were commander of Air Combat Command, uh, the, the punching side of the US Air Force, mm-hmm. and you at least had relatively large standardized fleets of aircraft where there was a lot of commonality because right. a lot of folks at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base worked really hard to make sure that it was that way. Right. Right. Um, is there a danger from your perspective, somebody who's now, you know, the head of an a, a industry advocacy organization but also a former combat commander, Is there a potential problem if we take our eye off the ball, we could end up with a lot of hodgepodge fleets of small things that folks look at scratching an immediate itch without thinking whether or not they're incurring a cost 10, 15 years from now?
1: Yeah, I think there is, and I think there's middle ground. So I think you can err way to one side where you say everything's got to be exactly mill spec and we're going to be very precise on requirements and what you get to I'm going to just do everything commercial off the shelf, whatever's out there, I'm going to buy and we'll use that. There's a middle ground there, and I think there's good in, you know, there's things in both that you have to be cognizant of. Clearly, you need a sustainable long-term fleet, and one of that is you've got to have the industry that can support it. Um, So diminishing manufacturing sources is a challenge. If you buy something commercial off the shelf and it doesn't have a long-term sustainability, in other words, that... Uh, product line is not going to last for a long time or it doesn't have a solid industrial base, then you probably don't want to buy it because five years down the line, when you need to start refurbishing this, that manufacturing capability no longer exists. So you have to be cognizant of that. On the other hand, you've got to be quicker. And a lot is being developed in the commercial enterprise. So how do you take advantage of that speed and long-term sustainable industrial base that can supply things and stuff and capability to the military. So I think uh, there is a caution. You, you can't go all one way of just commercial off the shelf. you got to be cognizant of what the long-term industry looks like, but you also can't handcuff yourself with this with the mill spec and taking so long uh, to develop things, and it's only developed for unique capability within the military, and it doesn't have any outside uses. Because that industry will dry up, too, because the military can be episodic as they buy. So I think there's middle ground where you have to do some of both.
0: You mentioned the industrial base and the importance of the industrial base. Um, The last administration studied the problem really hard, was looking at ways and and what are the vulnerabilities in the industrial base, uh, try to give some more predictability insofar as an unpredictable budget environment. This administration, obviously with President Trump's focus on America first and manufacturing, uh, there is a big industrial policy that's working its way through the White House that should to come out last week, it didn't. It's been End delayed a month. couple of weeks. End of the month. End of the, month. Uh, the question is whether the president himself is going to want to roll that out, which apparently I think is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit because you, uh, Aerospace Industries, Industries Association, and others contributed very meaningfully mm-hmm. to the to, to the production of that through Eric Tuning's office mm-hmm. uh, in the Pentagon. Obviously, going up into the White House. Talk to us a little bit about what the contours of this plan is going to be. We live in a globalized industrial base. The Pentagon has benefited from that in a lot of ways. Uh, at the same time, we have our own equities and interests we're trying to defend as a manufacturing power. Talk to us a little bit about what we're likely to see in the broad outlines of it and what it's going to mean from a DOD perspective.
1: So it's great work, and I uh, my hat's off to Eric Tuning and the work that he's done and uh, the entire in the MIBP and under uh, Secretary Lord has been fantastic, and we did do a lot of help. We brought industry together. They did listening sessions where we'd bring our members in to tell them what they were thinking about, what their challenges were. And so what I think is this rolls out is you'll get – initially you'll get, hey, here's where we're vulnerable. Uh, one of the things I think is the dialogue with the American people is we're not, we're not the military of 1991 or ni- August of 1990 when we deployed – I think everybody's talked about the peace dividend and the shrinking of the defense budgets in the 90s, and then right into 18 years of continuous conflict in a, in a totally different kind of environment where you didn't have a peer competitor. It was counterterrorism, counterviolent extremism. So I, I think the dialogue on, hey, this isn't the military that went into, into Kuwait in 1991. This is a wholly different military, significantly smaller and more fragile. So I think that'll come out with respect to capacity. And then I think what they'll look at is, what can our industrial base do? And there's some vulnerabilities that we know about. There's some that will be discovered that we're probably less aware of. Uh, There's ones like rare earth minerals that we know is a factor that we've got to get in front of. There's uh, things like uh, software programming and and where that is. There's some, uh, the big things, the big innovation, quantum computing, AI, directed energy, Uh, autonomy, semi-autonomous, man-machine teaming, all those are things that are part of this discussion on the industrial base. So they'll they'll point those out, and we've had fairly good discussion with Eric about what that's going to look like when it comes out, and then they're going to make recommendations. I would call this phase one. We've identified these challenges. Here's some recommendations to get started, but this is going to be a continuous process. This isn't going to be, hey, we did it, now we're done. We're going to have to continue to work on this. I think the the comment that you made that's really important is, defense industry is a global industrial base. Um, we'll never fight alone, as the saying goes, and I believe that. I think everybody believes and knows that history has proven that. Uh, and there are partners and allies that are part of that. That is part of this industrial policy that we can rely on. There's very close partners, and and you know, and I, it's not you're one or the other. There's probably some that are far to the we'll always be with us, we'll always be together. Our industrial policy can be cooperative. There's ones at the other end that we're probably never going to work with, and they're never going to be part of a coalition with us. And then there's a variance in between. So we have to take all that into account as we look at the recommendations for what we're going to do to support the industrial base. I think there's going to be incentives. Uh, I think there's going to be ways to try to uh, cover down on those, both internationally with our partners as well internally to the United States.
0: Do you um, think um, that the, that the buy American message is something that is potentially worrisome to some of our allies and some of our friends? You know, many of whom have set up companies in the United States, and and so there's this. On the one hand, there's uh, a sense of ease because they say, "Look, you know, we're operating in the United States as an American company." On the other hand. You know, some of that rhetoric means I I may try to direct work to an, uh, quote, American company as opposed to what might be perceived as a European or a foreign company. I mean, do you think there's a challenge there, seeing as how we've benefited from all of these technologies and capabilities?
1: So, you know, I (laughs) think the Buy American, I think the way it comes across can sometimes be off-putting for our partners and allies uh, because it sounds U.S.-centric, which in some cases that's a good thing. I mean, trade, economy, we all – we have to do what's right for our nation as well as our partnerships and our relationships. So I think sometimes a bi-American can uh, rub people the wrong way. Uh, but what I really believe is that, um, especially with that group that's really close to us and always will be, you know, Europe, Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, many of those countries, uh, we know we're always we're we're on the same wavelength and we're going to operate together. So I think what— What Buy American and what companies are realizing is, yes, but it's more about American jobs. It's more about American trade. This takes finesse. It takes understanding. It takes working with our partners and allies. Um, So I I do think that sometimes the way it comes across um, can be... um, off-putting to people, but I think there's so much more to it and there's so much complexion to it that there, that it really is good for all of us.
0: Um, let me ask you a question, because historically uh, opponents of industrial planning uh, have said, well, the government's really not good at picking winners and losers and they've got to stay out of this business and let industry do it. And to a degree, that's what we've done, which is one of the reasons we've ended up where we've ended up. Whereas there are those who say, actually, it's it's government's obligation and job. Every contract decision is an industrial-based decision, ultimately. We've picked who will survive and who won't survive. Um, you know, does, What's the kind of thinking the government has to use to end up with the right outcomes so that guys like you and your old guys get the best equipment and don't get You know, the best American thing might not be as good as the best foreign thing, for example, as we're realizing that in some cases, we're the near peer, it's not a peer competition. What's, What's the right balance there in terms of industrial planning and industrial focus from industrial-based consideration standpoints, but also ending up with the right product. What do you? What do you what's the sort of leading-edge thinking on that that you guys are, are kicking around when you're behind closed doors with your CEO counterparts?
1: So I think the, the biggest thing is it's, it's not a simple equation. It, you know, there's a lot of variables. So it's not, hey, we need to be able to produce this in the United States, and so we're going to go out and make the choice, and we're going to pick somebody, and they're going to win. Um, there's there's – a, it's a complex uh, equation, and I think that's what a gov- government industrial policy has to be. It has to take into account what we can do within this country. It has taken into account our partners, our very close partners, other nations, a global in- industrial base, global defense industrial base. And it's also got to take into account capitalism – I mean, earnings per share. Ultimately, my membership, it's about profit and loss. So there's a there's what makes it an equation. So you can't throw everything at something that has no chance of being successful. You have to find alternate ways to do that. So I think uh, you have to take all that into account. And and I think that earnings per share profit loss discussion has to be part of that equation as you look at the industrial base for this country.
0: Um, NDIA is also one of the conduits for uh, information into Ellen Lord Uh, as you said you know she's very busy and the last thing she wants to do is meet with 560,000 companies rather work with the big industry associations uh, talk to you guys together to to get that feedback whether at the small mid or 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 big level Um, what are you seeing in terms of uh, that dialogue Uh, What are you seeing in terms of output? You know, what are the things, the advice that's going into her? Uh, And she is now completely reorganizing the function. Uh, That's part of the legislation, the requirement, and and the guidance from Secretary Mattis by June June 1, give me a plan for how Mike Griffin and her are going to separate their responsibilities now that the jobs have been split, and how she's sort of doing a root and branch reorganization of ATL make it leaner, make it flatter, make it more responsive. Right, right. And each one of the service acquisition executives are doing the same thing. In that there is great opportunity, but also potentially great right, risk. Right. Uh, right. So talk to us a little bit about what's, what's going into her and, what, and, and, and sort of the, how you would characterize the relationship between industry and DoD
1: so i i I think it's great and i think uh, under secretary mattis's leadership and secretary lord i think is going to be she has been proven so far to be fantastic with respect to be open and receptive uh, to what industry is thinking about and uh, dr griffin michael griffin is going to be the same way i've already uh, scheduled meeting with him. I've met with uh, Secretary Lord several times. I just met with Shea Assad, so they're open to to industry uh, bringing in their challenges. And, I, and
0: let's not forget Pat Shanahan too, right? Former Boeing so Deputy, Secretary Deputy Secretary Defense Secretary.
1: Secretary Shanahan clearly is is part of the driver along with Secretary Mattis. Um, and I think what it, the you know the the two things is, uh, again, the, you know it's the famous fighter weapons school answer is it depends right so (laughs) there's either end of the spectrum it's you you, you've got to be diligent it's taxpayer dollars and you got to get the most bang for your buck so you got to be diligent about making things happen the department wants us to do that the services do congress does so you you have to have due diligence on the same hand you can't have so much due diligence and so much risk aversion that it slows down that the minute you hand something to the warfighter out there it's four generations out of uh, out of date. So you have to find that happy medium. Um, so technology, I think we're able, this country, I believe we're good at that. And there's cases where we need to step some things up. But but as a general rule, we, we, we are a good, innovative country and our workforce is very innovative. Um, but those we have to work on as well. But we have to also figure out how to transition that rapidly into the warfighter. This Valley of Death, as it's called, where you go from 616263 research and development to program a record, and there's no money for program a record until seven fight-ups down the road. That's not acceptable. So I think uh, what we are getting from um, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Shannon, Secretary Lord, Secretary Griffin, and all the folks who are working for them is they are seriously figuring ways to shorten that, to maintain due diligence and make sure that we're getting the most bang for the buck for the American taxpayer dollars, but we're also doing things in a way that makes them relevant to the warfighter quickly and getting innovation and technology into the hands of those young men and women.
0: Uh, you have been uh, on in this job for about a year, yes. uh, so congratulations Thank on you. that. Uh, one year under your belt. You've got a terrific team, uh, one of whom is sitting uh, right over here. And, and uh, even Marie Socha, who's an old friend of mine, uh, you're very lucky to have her. And here Scott, are. they're taking tremendous care of us. And uh, and General Boozer also has, has been uh, really, really great. Um, and, and a smooth running event, so I'll congratulate you for that. Thank you. Um, but, Talk to us a little bit about what your year two and beyond priorities are for the organization. You know, uh, you and your predecessor were, uh, their job was to revitalize the organization, Mm -hmm. put it back in a fighting trim. You've been certainly doing that. You're expanding events. Uh, There's gonna be an Army S&T, Science and Technology event in August uh, that we're gonna be attending. But talk to us about some of your other priorities. You know, where, where do you wanna take the organization now in the second year of your command?
1: So, uh, great. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. So, NDIA, you know, we're not your father's NDIA is a term we always use because we have evolved and we're continuing to get better. We're growing membership. Uh, we're bringing more companies uh, of all sizes, small, medium, and large. Uh, and we're really looking at the strategic priorities. And what we did, we went to our membership, we went to the department, and we went to Congress, and we go, we are the conduit, the form, to bring these groups together, industry, the Department of Defense, the administration, and Congress, and academia to solve the most difficult problems to keep our military, our defense, and and homeland security the best in the world. So what do you want us to think about? And so we we basically went out and got that. We looked at what we were doing. And we came up with really six priorities for what we're trying to do. Uh, Acquisition reform and modernization is one of them. We're working very hard on that supporting small business uh, because we believe that a lot of the innovation in the world comes through small business, so we're trying to promote small business, uh, which leads right into the innovation in that we've got to maintain that innovative spirit and continue to, uh, to develop the most capability we can. And we have great minds in this country from academia to industry to the department, and we've got to take advantage of those minds. Um, we've got to foreign military sales, and direct commercial sales are th- something that's important to us. Uh, we've got to work with our partners. We've got to understand this global industrial defense base, defense industrial base and we've got to think about um, how do we make our, it easier for our partners to buy things. MCTR, we were very diligent and worked very hard with Congress to change the missile control uh, missile and threat control regime. Uh, So that we could missile technology control control regime, regime. MTCR. Yeah, that's it. Mission missile control regime. I did. Um, So we had that needed to change because uh, other people were filling a space that we should have been in with respect to RPAs because of too restrictive uh, in the MTCR. So um, we've got to help with that with foreign military sales. Uh, and direct commercial sales, we, and that has a lot to do with interoperability. It has to do with our partners and friends that we're always going to fight with as we move forward. We would love to be able to have more impact on budget stability. One of the most, and you've heard everybody say, two-year was a huge win. It would be nice if we could keep that going. Where we have, you know, we we know the budgets will be controlled. But when I was in the in the Air Force still at ACC, and a, in the all the service chiefs will tell you now is. Give me a number so I can plan. You know, going through years, uh, you know, through nine out of the last ten years, I think we've had a, a continuing resolution, and those are just untenable to move forward. So how do you how do you uh, take advantage of that? So NDIA is really working our long-term strategy and where we're going forward. The other one in and the other one that we've talked about already is the industrial base and workforce, and there's two por- por- portions of that. It is the industrial base, the ability to produce the stuff we need and the manufacturing and the arsenal of democracy that we need to be. We also need to take care of our workforce. We need to grow the right workforce. And that is everything from the PhD astro and aero scientist to the physicist to the welder to the computer programmer. Uh, all of those are things that is part of the defense industrial work- based workforce that we have to work on.
0: Several friends uh, and I have been having a conversation about a closer and more intimate transatlantic industrial structure uh, that you know these are our closest allies we work very uh, virtually every military operation in- is includes them as we saw in this demonstration today right. Hungarian special operators Polish special right. operators not to mention uh, Singaporean, Singaporean uh, and also Latin American special operators uh, some of whom unfortunately have more experience than than even they might might have uh, liked uh, particularly in these hostage rescue situations that we saw today that involved the Tampa mayor who was who is a very good sport about it um, he loves it he does he does love it uh, yeah well i was saying I was, I was very happy to exchange myself for him yeah. but uh, you know it, it didn't work i tried to be gallant about it uh but t- t- how are you working with partner organizations uh whether they're in europe whether they're on the european level whether they're on the uk france french level i know that the air shores are an opportunity for you to do right. that but but what is what are the kind of the nature of the conversations you're having and how are you all working to bring together or or is there a better role you all can play to bring different industries, different companies, different ideas together that folks might not otherwise see?
1: Yeah, I think there is. And so I would tell you that the NDIA, um, with respect to our international partners, we're probably, as a nation, the most advanced and developed in the National Defense Industrial Association. Other nations have them, and they're growing. Uh, We have, today, we have 17 MOUs with foreign countries. That, that have their association equivalent to us, KDIA in Korea, SJAC in Japan, uh, QUAD is one that's the Brits, the Aussies, the Americans, and the Canadians. So we have very good relationships with those associations. There's more we could do. And we're helping them grow. We're working on some in the Middle East now, where we're working with some of the their equivalent type of associations that are nascent to help them grow and see what they can do. But uh, there's more and more we can do in the international space. And the MOUs are, are, that we have with these other nations are very valuable. I was in Korea and Japan both last summer uh, talking to my counterparts about things we can do together, like offset policy. Uh, with the Koreans, security requirements, cyber requirements, GDPR that just came out of Europe. All of those are things that we can work on together as to a sport on industrial base.
0: Uh, okay, and one last frivolous question. Uh, you're a graduate of the uh, United States uh, Air Force Academy. I feel that I was remiss because generally I ask this question from an Army Navy perspective because the Army Navy game is kind of the, the big game that everybody play, uh, watches that involves anything uh, using you know, the word military. Uh, but the Air Force tends to be above it in a little way because you guys just always have a pretty good football team. So are you guys going to win the Commanders Trophy again this year?
1: Of course, yes. <laughs> we had a we had a rough year last year. Um, uh, Troy Donahue is a great coach. Uh, we got a pretty young team. Uh, we got some kids coming back that are very good. We're going to have a very young quarterback. But, uh, yeah, we're going to win the Commanders and Chiefs Trophy. <laughs> have to. <laughs> I'm counting on it.
0: Ha Carlisle, sir, thanks very much. It's Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for all Appreciate
1: your time. It. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good to see you again, Vago.